0: Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. This week we have Dr. Joshua Ferris, Professor of Theology of Science at Missional University, joining Dr. Michael Egnor to discuss the nature of mind, body, and soul. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Egner, and I have the great pleasure today to uh, talk with Joshua Ferris. Uh, Dr. Ferris is a professor of theology, uh, and I think it's going to be a wonderful discussion. Uh, the topic today is why Cartesian dualism. Uh, in this episode, we'll discuss the merits of a the theory of the mind-body relationship uh, in contrast to alternative viewpoints, such as materialism, hylomorphism, and Berkeleyan idealism. Materialism is a dead end because of the phenomenon quality of qualia, rather, and the hard problem of consciousness. There's, there's also a quality problem in, in materialism, too, but that's a different issue. Uh, some form of dualism or immaterialism can satisfy these concerns. Cartesian dualism has become sort of a whipping boy in philosophy, theology, and the sciences, even more so than its cousins in the, in the dualist family. Why is this? Does Cartesianism have any advantages over the alternatives? Joshua Ferris has argued yes. In fact, it does. And there's one feature of persons that seems to require Cartesianism, but Cartesianism is compatible with versions of idealism and possibly even hylomorphism. One of the interesting implications of Cartesianism that needs spelling out is its theistic grounding. Some consider this a weakness, but others see this as a welcome and attractive feature of Cartesianism. My guest is Dr. Joshua Ferris. He is a professor of theology of science at Missional University. He is also a freelance writer for several academic news outlets and on topics of the soul, science and faith, and public theology. Uh, He is a consultant, writer, and product developer for Raising Families. He was the executive director at Alpine Christian School and a part-time lecturer at Auburn University at Montgomery. He's also the director of Trinity School of Theology. Prior to that, he was the Chester and Margaret Polish uh, professor at Munderland Seminary, University of St. Mary of the Lake, and assistant professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. Uh, He's authored a number of volumes and he is co-editor of the Rutledge uh, Handbook of Idealism and uh, Immaterialism, and uh, it is a great pleasure and an honor to have Joshua join us today.
1: Good to be with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So I'm, I'm fascinated by your insights into Cartesian dualism, uh, and I'm, uh, of course, very interested in the question of the mind-body relationship. For our, our listeners, what is Cartesian dualism, uh, and um, how can it help us understand the relationship between the mind and the body?
1: Yeah, sure. Good. Yeah. So there's, um, Cartesianism is a, is kind of a tradition. It is a tradition following from René Descartes. And so it's a tradition that's developed over time. And there are a few of us around today who defend some sort of Cartesian view. And um, it's a tradition that's developed. And, and what that means is, and we can get into this, what that means is it's it, we're not signing on to all that Descartes said, of course, and we're not affirming all the the naughty ideas that he had that have had um, a, a sort of denigrating uh, view of the body or a negative influence on on science and, and how we practice science, which there's lots of critiques out there uh, in that respect. But it is um, within a sort of family of what's called substance dualism, a substance dualism view of of uh, human constitution. So if we're talking specifically about human constitution or locally, how how it is that humans are composed or constituted, substance dualism is basically the view that there are uh, two kinds of substances or two types of substances. In other words, property bearers with some intrinsic sort of unity to each. And so there's a, oftentimes when you think of substance dualism, there's a property bearer of, of the soul or a mind that has um, properties of a mental sort. And then there's uh, properties of a material kind or a body that is distinct from the uh, mind itself. And so uh, Cartesianism would be within that sort of broader family of substance dualism. And on a Cartesian understanding, there's something unique about the the mind-body relationship in contrast to other potential variations of substance dualism. If you're following somebody like uh, Richard Swinburne or John Foster, who are both Cartesian dualists of sorts, they would say, and I would agree, tend to agree with them, something like this, uh, that uh, I am just my soul. I just am my soul. I am my soul that has a body or has some sort of singular relation or interactive relationship to my body, but my body is not me, strictly speaking. I'm not an animal, as some other views would say. I am a soul, and particularly, I am my soul. And so the, the soul is, this is what's important, really. The soul is the core or the essential part of me. It's the thing that carries along my personal identity and... And so you might contrast this, say, with some sort of a Thomist view that you might call some Thomists, and there's all sorts of different views out there, so I don't want to simplify it too much. But some Thomists would say they, would, they, they are substance dualists themselves, and they would say that, that I am my body, but I am a particular kind of body that has a principle, a formal principle, um, that, that, it, that does the sort of informing work of the matter. And uh, so you might take it that uh, when there is this composition of, of, of the material uh, with this forming principle, we have a distinction between uh, the material itself and the um, material as informed. And so you might think of, for example, think of the marble statue where there's, there's sort of the marble and uh, it's the sort of the material, and then there's this forming principle. And some would argue that on that basis, there is a substantial distinction between the two. And so some Thomas would uh, move in that direction. So that's distinct, say, from arguably from a sort of uh, a more uh, rounded Cartesian view that says that I just am my soul. I am not strictly speaking identical to my body and uh, how you work that relationship out between the soul and the body, well, that becomes a little bit more complicated. And obviously, there's different views on that. But the, the important point is, is that I just am my soul. And my soul is the co- core part of me that carries along my own personal identity.
0: The thing that I think bothers me the most about the Cartesian view, and, and I should first say that I have a great deal of sympathy for it. And I actually think that Thomism needs to be understood with respect for for that view because uh, for, for several reasons it it, make, it, it, it allows the Thomistic perspective, I think, to hew closer to our, our lived experience. But the, the first problem I have with the Cartesian view is that whatever value the Cartesian dualism has in understanding the mind-body relationship, I think it is, as a general metaphysical view, um, really deficient. That is that Cartesianism is bad metaphysics. Uh, I think it's better mind-body metaphysics than it is general metaphysics. But I think the general metaphysics is pretty bad. You know, animals aren't machines, and uh, things that exist in the world are a great deal more than just matter extended in space. And so, how do you feel about the the, the general metaphysical presuppositions of Cartesianism? And if they are significantly deficient, does that make the mind body aspect of cartesianism less less valuable
1: yeah yeah so i think um with respect to what i am committed to as a cartesian i am making a fairly um minimal claim that maybe maybe it can be shown that that minimal claim has implications that are negative in the way that is often sort of characterized or um projected back onto. Descartes and uh, the metaphysics that he inspired but it seems to me that the the sort of claim that I just am my soul yeah, um, is is the sort of minimalist sort of Cartesian commitment that I'm committed to that I think is the product product of common sense a sort of common sense epistemology and it's the product of a sort of um, a various arguments that we could get into and talk about. That are not always readily hospitable, maybe to, certainly not hospitable to materialism, but not hospitable, obviously hospitable to sort of variations of, of Thomist, Thomism or Thomist dualism. So if we think about various uh, views about like a myriological replacement and, and uh, the modal argument, uh, the modal argument which uh, someone might advance and say something like, if I'm the very same thing as my body, then whatever is true of me is true of my body, but my body may survive without me. And therefore I'm not the very same thing as my body. There are certain modal intuitions that seem right and seem confirmed also by uh, data that's out there like near death experiences and out of body experiences, as well as a sort of a theological tradition that I am committed to. And that is that I will exist someday uh, I hope to exist. I believe I will exist, disembodied, and so that Cartesianism is certainly more at home with, uh, or provides maybe a better or stronger accounting for those sorts of modal claims that seem conceivable. So that minimalist commitment is, I think, uh, what is um, really the strength of Cartesianism, but. In that, I don't think I'm committed to say the idea that the world is merely sort of a meat machine or that the, 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 the world lacks a sort of teleology or that the world, the natural world that is and the natural um, uh, organisms, physical organisms are sort of uh, just uh, me- uh, mechanistically explained all the way, all the way down um, to their sort of component atomistic parts. Um, so I don't think a Cartesian, at least as I've defended Cartesianism, I don't think, um, that I am, or you have to be committed to those other sort of metaphysical commitments that are often characteristic of, of Descartes, a larger metaphysical program. So I'm less interested, I guess, in defending those, um, and, and more interested in defending this more core claim, this minimalist claim, so I could call it kind of a neocartesianism. Uh, that's what I'm more interested in, this idea that I just am my soul. I am not a composite of my soul and body or mind and body. I am not a complex, and so my personal identity is not complicated in, say, the way that a materialist or arguably a Thomas would be.
0: I, I certainly... Uh... Agree that, that, that that's a strength of the uh, at least neo Cartesian way of looking at things, and it's a, and it's a very real strength. It's, 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 it's something I think Thomism is somewhat lacking. I, to me, the, the, the two great strengths of the um, Cartesian view is, as you pointed out, it, it gives more grounding to the sense that we all have that there's an I there, that there's a, a single metaphysically simple unitary thing that is us. The Thomas view, can, I think, has a great deal to say for it. But I've always wondered myself, where's the I in all of this? Uh, and and we, we all have that sense of what Peter Kraft calls the heart, like who we are. And it's not just one of the powers of, of our soul. It's, it's us. And where's us? And the Cartesian view helps with that. The other aspect of the Cartesian view that I think is is uh, particularly strong is it seems to accord very well with near-death experiences. Uh, and there's a lot of things in near-death experiences that I think are much more readily explainable from the Cartesian view of the soul than it is from the uh, Thomistic or other kinds of views uh, of the soul. One problem with the Cartesian view is that it seems to make it difficult to know why or in what way we, we would know a particular soul is associated with a particular body. I mean, let's say that uh, my friend Joe and I came into work one morning and, and Joe said, you know, well, uh, I'm Mike now. His soul is, is here. And, and, and I said, well, I'm Joe. You know, we switched last night. And how would you disprove that? I mean, if the, if the, if the body is, is just the ship that the soul is piloting, well, pilots can switch ships. Uh, and, and that gets to the modern problem that we're having with transgenderism uh, that is that if, if, if the cartesian view is correct a person who's transgender could very readily say well yeah you're i'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman's soul in a man's body uh, whereas the hylomorphic view would be no you're not <laughs> that, that your body is very much a part of you and um and you you have a, a spiritual or psychological problem but you can't be a woman's soul in a man's body
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's um, yeah, that's an interesting problem. So I think um, there there certainly are uh, those those intuitions uh, that that I find uh, appealing. Uh, those intuitions that um, sort of body swapping intuitions is what you're talking about. And and so um, you I, I'm reminded of that movie, Being John Malkovich. Have you seen that movie? Uh, no, no, but I've heard about it. Okay. Well, um, so it's a fascinating film because there's um, John Malkovich, um, there's this 33 and a half floor or something like that. People can actually go up to that, that partial floor and there's this little portal and they can slide down this portal and they end up somehow accessing some of the items of, of John Malkovich's uh, perception. And so they're able to experience, perceptually experience life through his body so you have females actually who who are able to access and um so it raises this sort of uh similar problem that you're 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 talking about and certainly that fits uh, more readily with the sort of cartesian view than than the Thomas view and that's um that's a concern so i think uh obviously body swapping intuitions are are um more readily at home with, with Cartesianism. And that's why, um, uh, there, there, there are these, uh, intuitions that we have when we think about the, the possibility of, 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 uh, existing or persisting out of the body or in a sort of near-death experience. I think those are, uh, that's kind of the trade-off. Um, but I don't know if it's as severe as people have made it out. If, um, If we sort of tweak our sort of Cartesianism along the lines of something like uh, an emergentist view, so if we think about, say, something like William Hasker's view, Hasker affirms a kind of uh, emergent dualist view, where he says that uh, the soul is, or the mind is um, a a phenomenal unity of consciousness, that it is the... It's the sort of binding force or the thing that provides unity to the items in one's uh, phenomenal consciousness. Uh, Kind of like um, if we think about the body and the soul relationship, it's similar. He uses the example of the magnet and the magnetic field in which when the, the, the magnet, when there's certain conditions that are met, the magnet gives rise to this magnetic field. And so there's certainly a distinction between the two. But uh, there is this close, intimate connection between the field and the magnet that are not um, easily separable. I think uh, most neocartesians today, uh, like myself, like Richard Swinburne, John Foster, you no, know, John Foster takes his view in an idealist direction, but um, I think most would affirm something like an emergentist view, That brings the soul, at least functionally speaking, brings the soul more closely connected with the body such that we can at least intuitively say it makes sense that when I hit my head on the top of the door, it's actually affecting my states of consciousness or like uh, the last couple of nights when I've uh, uh, been up. Really late or early into the morning, it affects my states of consciousness the way that my uh, the way that I treat my body, and certainly that's the case. If we take it that there is some sort of emergentist aspect to uh, how the soul comes to be in the world, I think we can provide some sort of accounting that brings the soul more closely aligned with. Uh, the body that we've been given, that I just commonsensically take for granted when I uh, interact with the world through my body and through the various controls of my body. It's, so it's not as, um, as somebody like Gilbert Ryle. The picture isn't quite as simplistic as, say, uh, a person that's in a ship who, who has these various controls in the ship, but this person could actually step outside the ship and jump in another ship. There's actually a more fine-grained, functional, um, functionally integrated relationship uh, between the body and the soul. But 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 wouldn't
0: that just be a hylomorphism? I mean, if if you get to the point where you're really sort of talking about f- form and matter, which is obviously the, the more fine-grained functional relationship, then it would just be a hylomorphic view. Well, maybe. I mean, I would
1: take the hylomorphic. I I guess I was taking the hylomorphic view to along a uh, sort of a more robust. Uh, to, to implicate a more robust ontology uh, of of matter-form right. um, relationship. And um, the emergentist view, certainly most emergentists, um, whether they're sort of non-reductive physicalists or they are um, dualists like William Hasker, the sort of strongest or sort of emergentist view, certainly they would be reticent to call their view hylomorphic.
0: Right. Um, I've long had... Um, problems wrapping my mind around emergentism it's it sticks in my craw as one might say um i don't understand it i I don't understand what emergence is and i don't see how it is a level of explanation it it seems to me kind of magical what is emergence And, and, and of what value is it in understanding things like this
1: yeah well it's um So the way that Hasker and others um, define it, uh, Timothy O'Connor is obviously one uh, defender of uh, what he calls an emergent individualist view, which is just a version of non-reductive physicalism, which says that uh, there are these um, properties or powers that at some suitable suitable level of uh, complexity give rise to, uh, a suitable level of neural complexity just gives rise in a law-like fashion to uh, consciousness and free will and these sorts of perspectives, or these sorts of powers. And so Hasker is building upon that sort of emergentist set of literature and saying something something similar in that um, what is what actually emerges is is actually substantial. And so what is actually required if we are going to have, say downward causation or a freedom of the will or a first person perspective, is, a substance of a sort that emerges from uh, a suitably complex neural structure and central nervous system. He says that what we need is something like a thisness, a, a, uh, a sort of um, what he calls a he, he calls it some sort of uh, phenomenal thisness. And this is where phenomenal consciousness becomes really important for him and why he ends up affirming uh, a kind of substantial dualism. Um, because he doesn't think that uh, phenomenal consciousness can be made sense of as a non-reductive physicalist, but rather it requires this additional feature that binds together the items within one's phenomenal consciousness. The fact that I can go out and experience a green pasture and I experience all the elements in the green pasture, including the, the, the sort of the wind blowing, the flower. Out in the middle of the green pasture, I experience it as, as one unified field, and I can isolate and pick out various items within my field of consciousness. But uh, there is something about that that is unique and um, unlike anything that we have in the physical world that requires what Hasker would say is a thisness. So, emergence is, yeah, emergence may be magical. The kind of emergence that I am committed to is a uh, is a more sort of minimalist um, commitment, uh, emergentist commitment that could be accounted for by way of simply um, uh, just theistic contentions. Why why am I connected to this body? Well, simply as John Foster would say, because well because God set it up that way.
0: I, and I, I thought a great deal about emergence. I guess you know, everybody has their bugbear, and it's. That's, that's... One of my bugbears. Because whenever I hear it described, at the end of the description, I really feel as though I don't know any more about what's going on than I did before the description. and It doesn't seem to me to explain anything. Mm-hmm. What emergence is, from my perspective, is it's a psychological phenomenon. Meaning it, it's um, the discovery that something is behaving on a large scale that you didn't expect. From knowledge of its behavior uh, on a small scale, so you know why would H2O molecules feel wet uh, when you put them together to make water? And there's nothing about the H2O molecule itself that would make you think of wet, but when it all goes together, it, it does feel wet. So you say that's an emergent—that's an emergent property of, of water molecules, is that they feel wet when you get a lot of them together? But that's just a psychological thing. That is, there's nothing magical that's happening when the water molecules get together. It's just that psychologically we didn't anticipate that it would feel wet, and hey, we're surprised it does. And if emergence is really a psychological phenomenon, which again, I think a pretty good case can be made that it is, then it can't be used to explain the mind because it presupposes the mind. So I, to me, it's it's smoke. It's just smoke and mirrors. It It, 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 it doesn't really explain anything. Certainly, the, the things that emergence tries to explain are fascinating and important things. So, for example, the unity of conscious experience is very important. But I don't think saying that it's an emergent property explains anything. That's, 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 I, 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 I don't get the explanatory power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that has led me... I, 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 I don't have the same problem with Cartesian dual, dualism, that a lot of, for example, materialists have like problems with the interaction problem and so on. I, I I think the interaction problem is, is sort of overdone. That is that if, if one accepts a mechanical understanding of nature, then yeah, there is an interaction problem because we, if in the mechanical understanding, uh, a lump of mass has to hit another lump of mass to make something happen. And obviously that can't be the case with Cartesian dualism, but, um, if one accepts a hylomorphic understanding of causation which includes formal and final causes uh, then you know immaterial things can cause all kinds of things that don't involve you know, matter hitting matter so i don't think the interaction problem is such a big deal although it's not a big deal if one does take a somewhat aristotelian way of looking at nature but the the the, the big catch i have with cartesian dualism is that it's too close to Cartesian metaphysics. And I think Cartesian metaphysics is a catastrophe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe I mean you could affirm so the the kind of Cartesian commitment that I have, I, I could as I could easily affirm a sort of um uh Barclayan immaterialist conception of how God uh, God sort of sets up the world. Uh I think um I'm already, as a, as a sort of theist Cartesian, already committed to some version of idealism as it stands. I mean, at some level, uh, God is, is the ultimate God's mind, and his, his intentions are the ultimate causal explanation of the world. And that mind is what, it, at least in part, explains uh, values and um, the meaningfulness of natural events, that uh, maybe themselves don't have, uh, apart from God's um, intending or conferring, um, they only have meaning in that sort of theistic context where God intends them in that way, um, something like a sort of personal idealism. So the commitment that I have to Cartesianism is fully compatible with that, but it's even compatible with a more robust Berkeleyan conception that says something like, that bodies or material really is a fiction, at least a fiction in, in an ultimate sense. There is no substantial existence to the material. Uh, the material itself is, uh, well, it's phenomenal qualia that God communicates to created minds. And so we experience uh, the physical world as extrinsic or external to our minds but it is something that God communicates to us that we, uh, we experience, we have phenomenal experiences of. And um, the view that says that I am strictly speaking identical to my soul or my mind, that is at the base what explains my consciousness and my freedom, uh, freedom of the will, and the fact that I am me and not someone else, that's uh, the important Cartesian claim um, that I think is, is compatible with the sort of Barclayan idealism. I haven't gone there yet, but right. uh, <laughs> right. but it is compatible It is compatible with it.
0: Yes. And I, I do feel that the, the sense that we are ourselves is something that is not well accounted for in the hylomorphic understanding. And uh, that, that is a strength of the Cartesian perspective. Josh and I were just talking briefly uh, about one gap in the, the hylomorphic Thomist way of looking at, uh, at the human person that has always bothered, bothered me, and I get the sense that Joshua has the same general perspective, and that is that there, there isn't so clear an I, an kind of a metaphysically simple me in the Thomistic perspective. Uh, to the Thomist, a human being is a composite of body and soul. And that's always bothered me. Uh, Peter Kreft, uh, who's a, a philosopher and the- theologian at Boston College, has described this eye as, as the heart. Uh, and he, uh, There's a great deal of reference to it in the scriptures. And that makes a lot of sense to me, but I'm not sure that Thomism has worked out that notion of the heart. Could you, uh, Joshua, see kind of a Thomist Cartesianism? <laughs> that, uh, could, could the two be blended in a way that, that did justice to both? Possibly. I haven't seen anyone
1: develop anything like this. Um, it, um, and maybe, maybe because of the sort of the respective baggage with each sort of tradition that's, that's there. Nobody's tried to work this out. But I, um, obviously, the, uh, you've mentioned the challenges to sort of um, broadly Cartesian view or Especially to Descartes, less of a, I think, less of a problem for sort of the neo-Cartesians that are developing the view today. I'm not sure that the commitment, sort of the minimalist commitment that I have to the idea that I am, I am my soul, uh, sort of has the same sort of baggage or implications. But it seems to me that you could have, you could affirm all sorts of views about uh, specific views about the. the, the body itself, the nature of the body, and and be a committed sort of Cartesian in this in this way, and and this is the strength in, I think this is the bigger challenge. The bigger challenge would be for a materialist or a Thomist to come up with a um, some sort of accounting of, of personal identity uh, that seems to be outside of the realm, or say an emergentist or a non-reductive physicalist to come up with with an accounting of personal identity uh, that just, that seems, um, it just doesn't seem like we have any resources to do so, to, to, to sort of do that. Um, but it seems to me that we could have um, a Cartesian intuition, uh, we, could, we could recognize the unavoidable um, Cartesian Kajito uh, assumption uh, or this basic metaphysical assumption that I am me, I am my soul. Uh, I am not my composite or my animal uh, that uh, has this unique formal principle in it. Uh, But I am am my soul that uh, can lose parts and physical parts and remain me and could even exist in the afterlife or disembodied. That seems the harder problem to me to explain um, on other views. But it seems perfectly compatible that you could have a sort of more of a, um, a robust Aristotelian view of the body, or you could have a, a view of the body that is a complex set of um, phenomenal properties, like something like Barclay's view, or you could affirm something, something else, that, it's, that, that there are these higher order teleological principles that are, or- are organizing the body that I interact with that doesn't in any way undermine the sort of Cartesian intuition. But again, um, I think as a Cartesian, one could have a robust, functionally integrated uh, relationship with the body that is, um, that is, that is meaningful and, and robust and, and doesn't uh, sort of denigrate the body to uh, mere machinery. And as a Cartesian also, I don't think I'm committed to, I, even Descartes claim that the, the beasts are um, mindless or soulless. If they do have some sort of consciousness, or first person consciousness in particular, then um, they would have something like a they would have a soul like I do that would have to be created by God. And I think that's okay.
0: Yeah. What has led me to a Thomist view, and I, I must say that had it not been for, for neuroscience, which is what led me to a Thomist view, um, I would, I would probably be a Cartesian because I, I, I do agree that there's a great deal of, um, there's a great deal to say for it. Although my, 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 sense of Cartesianism is that the closer we get to Barclay and idealism, the better Cartesianism gets. That is that I, I, I think it's, my sense is, is it's not idea. It's not idealistic enough because it, it's really the Cartesian understanding of matter that bothers me more than the Cartesian understanding of the soul. Um, but I don't know that they're so separable, meaning that uh, part the pun, meaning that if there's a metaphysical glitch in general Cartesian metaphysics, it really impairs the Cartesian understanding of the soul. I, I, if whatever the body-mind-soul relationship is, I think we would all agree that it needs to be fit in as a coherent whole with nature. Uh, You know, I'm not a naturalist, but we are obviously a part of nature in a very meaningful way. And so uh, the the whole metaphysical view has to work for me. Uh, And I think idealism is very nice that way in that I think you can get a a consistent, coherent metaphysical perspective from a Barclayan metaphysical way of looking at things. And you you can do the same with, with Thomism. I don't think you can do it with Cartesianism.
1: Yeah, so let me ask you some, uh, a couple questions. So it seems to me that my reticence to move in the direction of a sort of Barclayne, or I guess you might call it Cartesian idealist view that, that has a Berkeleyan flair to it. Because I, I, Berkeley doesn't sort of specify in a robust way, from what I recall reading, in a robust way the sort of individual essence or individuality or the particularity issue that just kind of um, naturally comes out of uh, sort of uh, a Cartesian way of, of, of approaching these issues. Um, but uh, it seems to me the reason why I've been reticent to go in the sort of more robust idealist direction is that, um, so if you take, this is getting into your specialty, so this is out of my specialty. In neuroscience, you have these split-brain experiments, Right. And you have um, evidence that suggests that there are split perspectives that can emerge or uh, causally um, come about as a result of the split brain. And you have other neuroscientific experiments that suggest similar phenomena, which seems to support something like a, a more robust kind of substantial dualism that is not had on maybe on idealism and that's i mean that's that's an open question i'm sure uh, Berkeley and idealists have ways of explaining that but it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be intuitive or the product say of common sense and this is this is another sort of larger issue with Barclay and idealism or some some sort of similar view is that it is, it just isn't the product of common sense it's not necessarily inconsistent with common sense it, so if there's Unless I have some sort of overwhelming reason to sort of pick up a view, a theory that makes better sense of the scientific data, I'm just inclined to take a more common sense approach and say, yeah, we have these two substances. Neuroscience seems to support that when my, you know, when something happens to my brain, it, it affects me and my conscious states functionally, or at least it affects my perspective uh, which you might distinguish, there's a distinction there between uh, perspective and consciousness. And that seems to be more naturally at home with something like a Cartesian dualism rather than a sort of idealist perspective that doesn't give substantial, sort of substantiality to the body.
0: Right. I think the, the strongest argument from science for idealism, and quite honestly, I think this is decisive, or at least at, at our pr- present level of science is um, an observation that I heard about years ago in college that fascinates me. It's, it's, it still fascinates me. And that is, when you look at the quantum mechanical world or the, or the world on the quantum mechanical level, matter disappears. That is, that, that, that in its most basic or in, in, its, in its most detailed reality at the quantum world, nature is an idea. It's, it's not material. Electrons are not little balls of things. Electrons are ideas. Uh, they're, they're, they're ideas expressed by, by equations, by Schrodinger's equation. For example, when um, you look in a reference book and it gives you the mass of an electron, it doesn't say which electron, because if you want to know the mass of a billiard ball, you have to say which one, because they'll be a little different from ball to ball. But there isn't any difference from electron to electron. There's one mass. And people have even said, do we know that there's not more than one electron? Could it just be one that is popping up everywhere? So the whole notion of individuation of matter disappears at the, at, uh, the quantum level, which is a very idealistic way of looking at the world. So I think quantum mechanics is, a, is sort of the scientific expression of idealism. And it's a powerful, powerful argument. Uh, so I, you you really can't make a case that matter is in the mind because quantum mechanics is all mind. So I think idealism in that in that from that perspective I think idealism is true. And I think it is in some ways the best way of looking at nature. But there are aspects, particularly of the of the mind brain relationship, that strongly support Thomism. You mentioned split split brain surgery, which is endlessly fascinating stuff. And um, it was r- originally, the, the original research on it was, was by Roger Sperry, who's a neurophysiologist who uh, worked in, in the mid 20th century, won, won the Nobel Prize for, for this. And um, I've operated on and worked with split brain patients uh, over the years. And, uh, and Sperry noted this, too, that in some ways the most remarkable thing about them is not the stuff that Sperry found. What Sperry found, which were perceptual disconnections, were very subtle, uh, very difficult to find. That's why he won the Nobel Prize for it, was that they weren't obvious. It took a lot of very subtle research to find it. The most remarkable thing about these people is that they're they're no different after the surgery than than they are before. That the hemispheres of their brain are, are, are functionally disconnected, and they're the same person. I mean, it would be as if you took your chainsaw to your desktop computer, cut it in half, and it still worked just fine. it would say, there's something awfully odd about this computer, because <laughs> it shouldn't work just fine when you cut it in half. But it does. Uh, and that's an awfully strange thing. And It was so strange that it led Sperry to reject materialism. I mean, he, had, he had no use for the materialist view at all. But there is a split. Things do split. And what's, but what splits is only perception. Perception splits. But intellect doesn't split. A, a sense of self doesn't split. The will doesn't split. And um, there's been fascinating follow-up on, on Sperry's work by two researchers, uh, Justine Sergent and Yars Pinto, who have looked at these patients more carefully. And uh, they found uh, an observation that's intriguing. A, that's a there's a, a brilliant experiment that Sergent did with these patients. And what she did is she took a bunch of split brain people and she um, presented letters to their visual fields in such a way that she was presenting different letters to the isolated hemispheres. Like your right hemisphere might see a K and your left hemisphere might see an N. And um, your hands and your arms, of course, are controlled by the opposite hemisphere. So in a person with split brain, the right hand is controlled by the left hemisphere, which sees their right visual field. So their right hand can only respond to the right visual field. And their left hand can only respond to the left visual field. And there's no connection, at least no obvious connection between the two of them. So what she did was she would show them letters, and uh, she'd ask them to you know push a button when they see a letter, blah, blah, blah. And then she'd say, I want you to push a button when, one or both of the letters are consonants. I'm sorry, are vowels. When one or both of the letters are vowels, push a button. So people would see these disconnected letters, in these different hemispheres that aren't that aren't connected. And when they would see a vowel, they would push it. But they weren't told which hand to use to push the button, and there was a button at each hand. And as it turned out, when they would see a vowel, say in their left in their left hemisphere they would just as often push the button with their left hand as they would with their right hand. That is, pushed the buttons regardless of what hemisphere was driving the hand. It was just 50-50, which meant that somehow the hemisphere that didn't see the vowel knew it was a vowel. And the interesting thing is that these people still had a perceptual disconnection, but they could figure out which one was the vowel, and that was not disconnected. That was unitary. It didn't matter which hand and which hemisphere. They knew. So that so beautifully fits the Aristotelian Thomistic view of the rational soul that it takes my breath away. What it's saying is that the perceptual uh, disconnection is there because the sensitive soul, which is the material powers of of the brain, is in fact split, or the, the sensitive powers of the soul are split. So perception is split. But intellect and will which are immaterial powers of the soul cannot be split, and indeed they they are not split with split brain surgery. So um, it's beautiful work. It's fascinating work. It to me it it, it hews perfectly to the Aristotelian Thomistic model of the mind brain relationship. Uh, and Cartesianism doesn't explain very well the perceptual split, and idealism doesn't uh, doesn't explain it well either. But Thomism nails it. Uh, the other thing that I think is absolutely fascinating, and this is something that has not been, in my view, questioned or investigated as it should just by the medical profession, let alone the, the, you know, the, uh, the basic scientists, is an observation by Wilder Penfield, uh, who was the pioneer in seizure surgery uh, back in the mid-20th century. And Penfield noted that there are no intellectual seizures. That is, that um, when people have seizures... Uh, the, the seizure is a is a is a kind of a random stochastic activation of the brain. Electrical impulses get going, uh, and they can happen anywhere, do anything. Meaning that it can make your arm jerk, it can make you fall down and go unconscious, it can make you see flashes of light, it can make you have emotional experiences, it can make you have memories and smells, and they're all practically anything can be a part of a seizure, except people never have intellectual content. That is, people never think abstractly during a seizure. And that's remarkable. That is, that no one ever does calculus as a part of a seizure, Uh, or even simple arithmetic. No one ever adds one plus one repeatedly as a seizure. No one ever contemplates justice or mercy as as a seizure. But practically anything else you can think of has been described as the ictus of a seizure. And Penfield said, why not? I mean, if most of the brain is devoted to abstract thought, why wouldn't an occasional seizure fire off an occasional abstract thought? And it never does. And that's exactly what Aristotle would have said. He said, yeah, because abstract thought is not material. It doesn't come from the brain. The brain conditions our ability to think abstractly. If you drink a lot of alcohol and you have ETOH floating around your neurons, you're not going to think abstractly as well as if you don't. But the actual cause of the abstract thought is not the brain. It doesn't come from the brain. But then again, there are thoughts that are caused by the brain, but they're not abstract. They're uh, emotions, they're perceptions, they're, they're movements. So this dichotomy between perception and cognition is very real in neuroscience. And the only metaphysical framework that also has that dichotomy is the Aristotelian-Thomist understanding of the soul. So that, that's why I'm a Thomist. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm hung up on, on sort of the,
1: um, the Aristotelian framework as, uh, as being the only way to sort of make sense of or explain that that sort of data. I mean, when you read somebody like Richard Swinburne and his, the evolution of the soul, he, he gives all sorts of thought experiments about how desires and sense perceptions are uh, somehow uh, functionally integrated uh, processes that are, are, are dependent upon cognition and neurology. And so he recognizes that. So in that way, he may be, um, he may be affirming something like an Aristotelian view of the body, but is it someone who affirms a kind of let's let's say hypothetically um, emergentism is is a phenomena that uh, is sort of set up by God as, as a sort of law like relationship where there is this lawful occurrence that uh, that just occurs when when these complex set of conditions are met. Would that not provide any sort of explanatory power similar to the Aristotelian
0: conception? Sure. The, I, I say this humorously, but I, I actually believe it. First of all, I, I, I think idealism is best understood, uh, as uh, Augustine said, that creation is a thought in the, in the mind of God. That is, that we in, in, in the universe, we inhabit our thoughts in God's mind, and that's it. Is that, that, that that they're quite real, because they're, they're, they're thoughts in God's mind. They're, they're, that, that's mm-hmm. not to diminish mm-hmm. them, but that's what we are. And and that's that's an uh, that's an idealistic uh, under, understanding of metaphysics. But I I, I would say tongue in cheek that God is a Thomist. That is that the structure in the divine mind hews rather closely to the Thomistic view. So I, you can say that I'm that, that I'm I'm a Mm-hmm. mystic idealist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To me, that makes the most sense. That's the thing that that, that But I can't, bet because of neuroscience, as well as some other things in science. For for example, um, the collapse of the quantum waveform. Uh, you know, the, the the notion that things exist in in an array of potential states until they are observed, and then they. Collapse into an actual state uh, is straight out of Aristotle, who described potency and act. I mean, it's, it's, and Heisenberg noted that. Heisenberg said, if, if you wanted to understand quantum mechanics in, you know, 2,300 years ago, just read Aristotle. What seems strange to us is not strange at all from a, from a hylomorphic perspective at the quantum level. The transition from potency to act is collapse of the quantum waveform. Um, and actually, St. Thomas said something that blew me away, blew me away uh, in uh, De Anima, when he was discussing the active intellect. That is, that in the Aristotelian psychology, the intellect has an active and a passive power. And the active power is the power that extracts the intelligible form from something. Uh, and it basically takes you from a particular thing in your environment to a conceptual understanding of what that thing is all about. So the active intellect metaphorically reaches out and grasps the the intelligible form out of something. And the passive intellect receives that form and allows you to understand it. And what St. Thomas said was that in order for the active intellect to grasp the form of a substance, it must reduce the substance from potency to act. It can't grasp the form until the substance is inact, because if it's a potency it doesn't exist, which is exactly the mental dependence of quantum collapse that we see in quantum mechanics. That is that the mind has to collapse the waveform in order to grasp it. And that's what Saint Thomas said a thousand years ago. So it it, it just it, it just gave me chills. It gave me chills. So the Thomistic Aristotelian Understanding of the mind, and frankly, of a lot of science, is so perfect. It's so uh, it's elegant that, as I said, I think we are ideas in God's mind. But God's a Thomist, <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so. Um, and my problem with the Cartesian view is, uh, well, first, giving full respect to the idea that there is there is an eye that's missing in Thomism that it certainly is missing in, uh, in the materialism, but it's, it's missing in Thomism, that the Cartesian view does show respect to, which I, I think is very good. My problem with the Cartesian view is that Cartesian metaphysics is so wrong in so many ways that I, I find... I, I, I can't accept the, the, the mind-body metaphysical aspect of such, a, such an, an inadequate metaphysics in so many other ways. It just grates... <laughs> For example, what is matter? That is, that, that, that if, if one comes from a Cartesian perspective, how does one explain, I mean, what, what is matter?
1: Yeah, well, obviously there's the traditional Descartes sort of line, or the, at least the interpretation of Descartes, and there's uh, the Neo-Cartesians who, who don't always um, put their full commitment behind that sort of definition.
0: The, the, the definition would, would be... That, that which is extended in space, is, is that the... Uh...
1: Yeah, it's a sort of uh, quantitative measured extension. That's what matter is. But again, yeah, I mean, um, a Cartesian of today, a contemporary Cartesian, isn't committed to that uh, necessarily. Um, I don't think it follows uh, from, from the commitment uh, that one makes about the soul or personal identity. I'm, I am wondering if something like an Aristotelian conception of matter... Or an idealist slant of a sort of Aristotelian conception of matter can be compatible with uh, a sort of Cartesian view of the soul. I mean, most most Cartesians today are actually affirming that they, they don't. They're not coming with a sort of full-blown metaphysical picture that they have parsed out with respect to um, uh, matter. They're they're not coming at it from uh, with the sort of the freight of the sort of Aristotelian ontological categories. But they are gesturing maybe in that direction, which...
0: Um well, the problem is that in the Aristotelian view of matter, of course, in kind of the most fundamental way, matter is potency. But matter, in a substance, I think Aristotle would say, is, is the principle of individuation. And um, in Cartesianism, at least for, for a human being, the principle of individuation is the soul. So it's completely different. So I don't see how you can blend them. I mean, the the the, the Aristotelian understanding of matter is that it, it, it individuates. His understanding of form is that it doesn't individuate. Uh, it, it's the it's the principle of intelligibility. It's not the principle of individuation. So, in a sense, the Aristotelian view of the human person would have just the opposite metaphysical commitment to that of Descartes, that is, that it's it's the the matter of the person individuates the person, the soul is the intelligible part, Descartes would say, well, the matter is the measurable, so the intelligible part, and the soul is what individuates. It's kind of the opposite.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I So I, I think if you come at identity from an Aristotelian perspective, if, if matter is what individuates, then I don't think we're ever going to get at that more fundamental feature that makes me me. Right, and I think that's the harder problem. I think we, there's probably ontological ways we could set up to make sense of um, how sort of um, how matter works and how it how it sort of affects the the mind, um, how it affects perception. We can make sense of that if we have a sort of functionally integrated soul body interaction, but uh, I don't think the Aristotelian can ever make sense of the individuality of, of personhood.
0: Right, right, right. And, and I think the, the Aristotelian or Thomist would, would try to skate over that by saying that the person is the composite. Uh, so the, the individuation of the person is because of his matter, but the person himself is is the composite, therefore he is individuated because he's the composite of matter and, and soul. However, I think I do agree that that's kind of skating. That's you know, the, I don't come away emotionally satisfied with that because there is, let's face it, there's a metaphysically simple me, mm. and I, I was going to say that I know well, but Wittgenstein would say no, I, I don't know me well at all. The me is what knows, not what is known, um, and there is something in me that knows that that uh, that is me. It's not it's not in me. It is me, and I do agree that the Cartesian view can handle that, and I don't think the Thomistic view handles it particularly well. And I still keep going to the idea, well, if we were thoughts in God's mind and God was a Thomist, maybe that would handle it well. (laughs) So, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk just a little bit about... um, philosophy of science and its relation to theology. First question is, uh, is belief in God compatible with the practice of science? Yes, absolutely. It seems like a silly question, but it's actually a pretty hot question nowadays, uh, uh, which seems to be kind of crazy, but okay. (laughs) So uh, uh, why would uh, anyone claim that you couldn't believe in God and be a good scientist? Why why do people believe that there's a conflict between science and uh, religion?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I think there's some converging uh, influences uh, in the history of science that we could look at. You might know better than this uh, than me, but um, uh, there is certainly um, a sort of um, prevailing sort of common idea that, that science proceeds and has proceeded without sort of God in the picture. Uh, and and it's a sort of explanatory picture of, of, of natural events that we observe and we try to make sense of that God really has supplied no uh, relevant answers to. Certainly, when we uh, hearkening back to some of our discussions about the nature of consciousness and personal identity, uh, the, there seems to be a common sort of idea that uh, uh, that scientists affirm something like uh, the elimination of, say. Uh, the free-willing self. I was reading a couple of weeks ago um, this book by a set of popular scientists that are out there called um, Ideas That We Must Dispel Ourselves Of. I think that's the title of the book. Have you heard of that book before?
0: Uh, no, I haven't, but it, it sounds like the kind of book they, they would write. <laughs> so...
1: <laughs> so um, yeah, there's so there's this common idea that uh, that uh, some sort of when we proceed uh, utilizing the method of methodological naturalism, uh, as methodological naturalism is often taken to be just science, it just is science, and um, science proceeds in a way that uh, that has no need for ghosts, angels, or eerie spirits or uh, God. We have no need for that. In fact, uh, we have no need for consciousness itself. So you have people like uh, the uh, psychologist Bruce Hood, who are operating out of this sort of framework, who who uh, who sort of make these these sort of wild claims. They sort of uh, well, we're forced to re-examine the factors that are truly behind our thoughts and behavior, and the way they interact, balance, override, and cancel out, and um, So he goes on to suggest that we no longer need any sort of idea of this sort of free-willing self. Uh, Instead, we need to re-examine what's behind our thoughts and behavior because science doesn't give us a free-willing self or a conscious self. There is no more need for that.
0: The the, the odd thing, if you think about it, why, why would anyone try to convince other people that there is no free will? Because if there is no free will, then other people aren't free to choose to agree or disagree. I mean, it kind of just, the the the, the whole process of discourse presupposes the, op- the, the the option of choosing. And if everything's guided simply by physical interactions, then we're all just reflex preparations anyway, and why bother? <laughs> it just, it just me.
1: What's the point of persuading us otherwise with reasons that we can adjudicate?
0: How can you be persuaded if you don't have free will anyway?
1: That's right. Why would you try to persuade me of that? Right.
0: The other thing is that, that the, the philosophers and scientists who, who argue that the notion of God is sort of superfluous to uh, in, in spirits and things like that are, is superfluous to science are the same people who propose that an, an uncountable number of universes exist within the multiverse. And of course, they invoke that to to try to uh, defend a naturalistic understanding of uh, you know the fine tuning of the universe and so on. Uh, so they'll, they'll posit the existence of, of uncountable other universes. That's not too strange. But the idea that there might be a god is crazy and just uh, off the plate. Yes. Oof. Yeah, it's baffling. Yeah. 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 Unless you, one just presumes that they just they just don't want to face up. To God, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, if, if you want to get if you want to get rid of uh, of God, uh, you know that that's the way to do it. You just stipulate that he that he doesn't exist, and that you can't do science without him, and then you make up all sorts of crazy stuff and call it science.
1: Yeah, there do there do seem to be some moral motivations behind the scene. I mean, uh, in that same book, this uh, ecologist have you heard Jerry Coyne? Is, is that his name? Jerry Coyne at the University of Chicago?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry Coyne, yeah. yep.
1: Coyne at the University of Chicago. Right, right. I mean, he makes claims like this. The same book, This Idea Must Die, he states, quote, the illusion of agency is so powerful that even strong incompatibilists like myself will always act as if we had choices even though we know we don't. We have no choice in the matter, end quote.
0: <laughs> the funny thing is that the exact opposite is true. Right, they do have choices, and they pretend that they don't. Uh, I've, I've I've interacted with Coin quite a bit. Uh, we go back and forth on blog debates, and um, he's quite hilarious. Meaning, he um, he actually he, he put up a post on his blog a couple of years ago showing uh, I think it was a dented fender on his car. Uh, you know, somebody in a faculty parking lot had bumped into his car and then drove off. And how you know? In fact, somebody did that to his car and didn't own up to it. And um, I pointed back and said, "Well, if, if the guy had no free will, how can you blame him?" Right. You know? I mean, if he was a meat robot, there's there, there's no blame. There's there's no accountability. You know, it's it's no no more than that than if than if the wind knock, uh, knocks over a, a tree branch. It's just it just happened. You know.
1: That's right. Yeah. Why would you be so upset about?
0: It? Right, 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 right. They, they, they're, they're, there's no such thing as culpability. Right. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it just stuff happens. You know. And, uh, the the other problem with that viewpoint and the, the denial of free will is, a, is an extraordinarily dangerous idea. I actually think it's among the most dangerous ideas put forth by by materialist who put forth a lot of dangerous ideas. Um, and the reason is that the denial of free will is is the core of of totalitarianism. Uh, that is that um, totalitarianism entails reducing human beings to, to livestock and then to herding them and culling them as you see fit. You know, Hitler didn't gas six million Jews because they were individually culpable of doing anything, right? There, there were no trials. They weren't convicted of any crimes. They were basically treated just like, you know, livestock that you wanted to get rid of. And if there is no free will... It's true that there is no guilt, but there's also no innocence. Mm-hmm. That is, that if there's no free free will, then the, the purpose of law enforcement, the purpose of the criminal justice system, would then be just to, to stop crime. And if you want to stop crime, you can do it very efficiently by just imprisoning people who might commit crimes. Why why wait to prove their guilt? Uh, it's much more efficient.
1: There was a film about that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. What was that film? Pre-crimes
0: and... Right, right. I, I'm, it was Tom Cruise. Uh
1: like yeah, Tom Cruise, Minority Report. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's it.
0: Uh, and if there is no free will, then everything leads to that. You know, why, why, why waste your time waiting until somebody commits a crime? I mean, if no mm-hmm. if, if 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 no one is guilty, then no one is innocent.
1: Why not put them away or put them out of misery? Yeah, early on, right? Precisely. No. So that we don't have to deal with it. Yes, yes, right.
0: Nobody puts uh, nobody puts a uh, coyote raiding their chicken coop on trial. They just shoot it, uh, and uh, because coyotes don't have free will, coyotes just do what they do. Uh, so yeah, so it's it's deadly stuff. It's a deadly idea, uh, and I, I, we don't realize how how bad it is. It's not just an academic question. Yes. Here's here's a question. Can you demonstrate God's existence scientifically?
1: Yeah, so um, I I guess it it really goes back to a more fundamental question about what we mean by science and what science is. And I I mean, so there's different answers, uh, obviously, to that question. And uh, can we use the—and there's obviously different positions in church history on this about can we use nature itself and can we derive certain information from nature itself to demonstrate the, the existence of God. And uh, there's excellent work in natural theology being done today by uh, philosophers who, who have um, made uh, pretty valiant attempts to uh, develop arguments that um, uh, move in the direction of, of demonstrating God's existence and uh, utilizing nature as a sort of independent source that we can derive our premises from and, and develop um logically airtight arguments that demonstrate God's existence and i'm sympathetic to those proposals and and um, I think um, I guess the way that I approach natural theology is more of a um, along the lines of a sort of I think it's better to sort of approach it as this kind of logic of discovery from a vantage point of that already has a pre-commitment to theism, and in my case, particularly Christian theism, that has a particular lens on, on the world that uh, does a better job of explaining certain things in the world. Ultimately, um, theism provides a better causal explanation for of, say, consciousness and the implications following from consciousness, as we were just discussing, seems to me that the, the various properties and powers that follow from consciousness uh, lend themselves to um, all sorts of theistic implications. And this is why uh, many scientists uh, who are, have sort of developed certain habits want to get away from those consequences. And so they, they have to effectively eliminate the conscious self, uh, the free-willing self, in order to avoid those implications to theism. Yeah, so I think um, there's a robust tradition of sort of looking out into the world and reflecting on God's existence in nature. Uh, The famous passage, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And I think there's something important about um, having a sort of attitudinal stance or an approach to nature that... uh, comes with this sort of particular lens in surmising the uh, data from nature and seeing what it, what it teaches us from a um, perspective of wisdom, our, our sort of location as, as human beings who are created in the image of God and uh, recognizing that this is his handiwork and sort of approaching it in that way. So that's, I guess, the, 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 the manner in which I'm inclined to uh, approach natural theology.
0: I've argued uh, on in me and my matters that I think the the definition of science that I like and that I think works the best comes from um, really from from the classical philosophers and that is that uh, science is the systematic study of uh, effects according to their causes and uh, so it, it kind of has three characteristics. It's it's systematic so it's not just hunches occasionally. Doing stuff, but actually sit sitting down and studying it. Um, it's a study of, of, of effects uh, of things in nature as they are, and the study is focused on the causes of those effects. And uh, natural science, which is oh, and that's scientia That's 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 science understood most broadly, which would include theology, which would include uh, ethics and, and music and all sorts of things, and natural science. Uh, would be the systematic study of natural effects according to their causes. And uh, I think that works, especially if one only modifies effects by natural, but not causes by natural. That is that there are effects in nature that have uh, extra natural causes. Uh, obviously, the Big Bang. The Big Bang was the beginning of nature. So whatever caused the Big Bang was outside of nature. Uh, I think that uh, singularities uh, at the core of black holes are uh, extranatural things. They, are, they aren't defined in physics. They're, they're outside of physics. But they would
1: still be within the domain of science, according to your definition?
0: Yes, yes. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Because they, singularities are solutions to uh, the field equations of relativity that blow up, that basically go to infinity because something is divided by zero. That is that when you if, if you actually do do the equations, the number becomes infinitely large and that, that's a singularity. And mathematically that's not defined. That is division by zero is not considered a, a defined function in mathematics. And so singularities within physics aren't defined. Their effects are defined. That is, they they give rise to black holes. And it probably gave and probably a singularity gave rise to to the Big Bang. So we can know a singularity by its effects, but we can't know what it is, because it's not defined. If you look at the classical ways of knowing God, there are three, three ways that, that God can, can be known. We, we can't know him in himself, uh, as he actually is, at least not in this life. But we can know him by what he is not, we can know him by his effects in the world, and we can know him by analogy. Uh, which is St. Thomas.
1: That's very Thomistic of you. Oh yeah, case. yeah, yeah. Yes, yes.
0: That's a classic St. <laughs> Thomas. But but he got a lot from from Boethius. I mean, he he got a lot from a lot of people. Uh, but yes, yes. And I and, and I th- and the interesting thing is that if you look at the way science handles singularities, it's the same three. It knows singularities by what they are not. You know, they they don't have dimensions. They they don't have uh, temperature or color or things like that. They're known by their effects in, in the world. They give rise to the Big Bang. They're, they're at the core of black holes. Uh, and they, we can know them by analogy. Uh, singularities are often depicted as um, depressions, in, you know, like a stretch, a stretched rubber membrane. If there's rubber membrane in space-time, singularity is, a, is an infinitely deep depression in that membrane. So science deals with singularities just the same way as St. Thomas said we had to deal with God. Now, that's not to say that singularity is a god. But what it's saying is that science can deal with things outside of nature and does all, all the time. In fact, numbers are outside of nature. You know, the, the number four is not a natural thing. You know, there, there are f- groups of four things in nature. The four trees in my front yard, blah, 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 four, four, four tires on a car. But the number four is not a thing in nature. It has no location. It has no weight. It has no, you know, it, it's not a, it's not a natural thing. It's invoked in science constantly. So there's all kinds of things in science that are not themselves natural causes. So yeah, I think the supernatural can cause things in nature. It does, it does all the time. If, if we define things that are undefined in the natural world as supernatural.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Okay. That's a very classical way of approaching science. Yeah, 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 that's good. Okay. No, I appreciate that. So that wouldn't fit very well within the confines of what? what most are considering, um, methodological naturalism.
0: Yeah, um, methodological naturalism is um, bad science. It's ideological science. It, it's it's saying that no matter what the cause of something is, we're going to exclude anything that's not a natural cause, which, which is junk science. I mean, that's basically saying we don't care what the real cause is. We're going to impose the structure on it, knowing that that could very well lead to causes that are real as i said the, the the definition of science is the systematic study of of natural effects according to causes, any cause whether it's natural or or supernatural, i think is is the best definition of science if a supernatural cause is the cause that you go for it
1: yeah yeah so we're you, yeah on your definition we're basically studying causes and effects uh-huh. right. and and some are na- natural some are natural and some are supernatural right um, right the study of revelation or the a theological study of revelation on that definition would be considered science as well.
0: Yeah, and the, the classical philosophers did consider that. I mean, theology was the queen was right. the queen of the sciences. And the, the only thing that distinguishes science as we know it today is just that it's the study of natural effects. We, we, we restrict our study to effects in nature, uh, and that's what natural science is. But we don't restrict our study of causes of those natural effects to To nature, the causes can be anything, whatever wherever the evidence leads.
1: Right, right, right. So, so as a practicing scientist, do you do you think that um, there is a still today, at least in the academic practice of science, is there any place, or at least any robust place, for theology to enter into the scientific discussions?
0: Theology is in all scientific discussions. Everything. It's everywhere. Uh, either acknowledged or or denied, you know, mean, meaning that uh, a very a very good example of this. Um, I am of the very uh, firmly held opinion that um, all proofs of God's existence, all of them, are um, scientific proofs. Uh, that is that that the, the notion that you know science can't prove God, and, and, and many 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 theists, you know, say, well, you know, science can't really prove God, but. You know, all genuine proofs of the existence of God, proof meaning inferential lines of reasoning, are scientific proofs. Uh, the reason is that uh, in, in St. Thomas's view, and I, I, I think he's right on this, uh, existence is absolutely distinct from essence. Uh, so the fact that something exists, uh, that, that uh, what is different from that, basically, that something exists is a different thing than what that something is. And... Um, Therefore, you can't demonstrate the existence of anything, the thatness of anything, by just describing the whatness of it. Which means, for example, that the ont- the ontological proof is not valid. And St. Thomas famously rejected that proof uh, because right. there's no existence in it. There's no evidence. It's, it, it's it's a formal logical proof, and formal logical proofs cannot prove anything outside of formal, logical things. God is not a formal, logical thing. He's an existing thing. So you have to have evidence to prove the existence of anything. So to to prove existence at the end, you have to start with the existence of something. And that's inductive proof. When you start with evidence and then use uh, some formal system to arrive at inference to best explanation, that's an inductive line of reasoning. And science is just inductive reasoning applied to nature. So the, the proofs of God's existence are also inductive proofs, and they have the same structure as scientific proofs. A very good example is the prime mover argument. Uh, the prime mover argument, basically, is that change exists in nature and that it is not possible to have an infinite regress of, of instrumental causes in a, in a system of, of change without having at the, um, at the foundation of this instrumental series of causes uh, an unmoved mover, a prime mover, uh, that is not itself moved. That's a scientific argument, because you start with the, the empirical observation of change in nature, and you reason through a formal way to what must be true of the cause of that change. That's the same thing as is done in, in evolutionary biology, Looking at nature, reasoning back to what causes the change in species. Same thing that's done in physics: what causes this uh, radioactive isotope to e- to emit that uh, electron? So, all I believe all valid proofs of God's existence are scientific theories. hmm
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense from what, Yeah, from the way you're de- describing science. Yeah.
0: So when you when you say, you know, is it can, can science be done without theology? Um, at least, if one is talking about natural theology, science and natural theology are 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 completely intertwined.
1: Yeah, so it seems like an obvious question. I guess as a as a theologian, and um, this is something that I, I, I and we don't have time, but someday I'd love to chat more about and and um, to see how we can develop fruitful research programs to integrate the two a bit more consciously and explicitly in print. Um, So the question seems obvious, but I just don't see a lot of uh, robust theological and scientific engagement taking place right now, and how it is that theology can actually offer any sort of voice in the the contemporary scientific conversations, or how it is that the scientific practitioner can consciously bring God into the mix and, and, uh, and supply a sort of, logic that gives us a fruitful way of discerning where god is acting in the present world right now it's hard for me to see that actually taking place where um theology has largely been marginalized in the higher ed systems and the at least in the u.s um as almost well it's just it's just almost irrelevant these days um and it's certainly irrelevant in scientific
0: discussions well it's irrelevant but it even goes further um if you are a, a practicing scientist and you bring theology into your science, you're unemployed. That's it. Uh, I I, I, have a, I, have a friend who's a leading biologist who is a devout Christian. And I talked to him one time about intelligent design and all of that. And he said he, he would give anything to be involved in it because he really believes in it. He said, but if I ever said a word publicly, I would never get another grant. Right. And he's exactly right. He, he'll be totally canceled. Um, so in, in that sense, theology is already in science, in a, in a negative sense, that if you, if you make any appeal to God, you're, you're done. You're done.
1: That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah.
0: It's, so there, there's no separating theology and science. I mean, the, if, if you look at, for example, even Aquinas' five ways, that the first way by change, the second way by causation, the third by contingent existence, the fourth by degrees of perfection, and the fifth by regularity in nature. All of them, all of them are scientific statements. Every single one. That change, how do you account for change? There has to be an unmoved mover. That's a scientific line of reasoning. There's change is observed, is observed in the world. When you analyze it very carefully, you realize that there has to be something that does not change that begins it. Cause, causes exist. There has to be an uncaused cause that begins the chain of causes. Uh, There has to be a necessary existence to account for things that exist. There has to be an ultimately perfect thing to account for degrees of perfection. And there has to be an intelligent designer to account for regularity in nature. That's all scientific. Every single one of those things is, is a perfectly reasonable, valid inference in the natural sciences. And every single one of them is explicitly uh, excluded in uh, the way science is practiced nowadays. And if you bring them up, you lose your job.
1: Right, right, so, uh, right.
0: Uh, uh, and punishing people for bringing them up. In a sense, is theology and science only? It's negative theology. It's that if you bring it up, if you bring theology up up in science, you're fired. But that is theology and science. It's just used as a as a cudgel instead, instead of as, as an aid.
1: Right. Yeah, and that's why. Well, so it is difficult right now to 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 articulate in in our contemporary situation how it is that theology can be the queen of the sciences. Um, if it's not if it's not functioning in any sort of robust way in how science is conducted and how the conclusions are interpreted.
0: Well, it depends on how you define theology. If you define theology as including the um, philosophical and methodological exclusion of inference to God from scientific work, which I think that that, that is a theological statement, I and mean, that's uh, you know theology can be negative. Uh, if you define theology as including that, then all science nowadays is theological in a sense that you better not talk about God. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah yeah so yeah, yeah. so there, I, there's no escaping it. You know just, just as there's no escaping God. Uh, there's no escaping inference to God. Uh, you can choose to, to refer to God in your work or you can choose to refuse to refer to God and to punish people who do, but it's all theology.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, That's a very sort of Thomistic way of thinking. I mean, so there are classical Reformed ways of thinking about science and theology that's different. I mean, that depart from Thomas. uh, I mean, so you have um, Herman Dueryard, the systematic theologian, who would say that theology is one science among other sciences, and philosophy serves the foundational role. And um, philosophy' is foundational to all the sciences. So there's some sort of um, demarcating role that's given to philosophy as, as uh, a way of, of demarcating the different disciplines and how we uh, parse out the different disciplines and their various uh, the information that it gives.
0: Here's, here, here's a good sort of, I think, retort to that, the, the notion that philosophy is the foundation of sciences rather than theology. Uh, and that is that um, without theology there is no real ground for believing in the existence of anything outside of your mind in, in the validity of, of your concepts and the validity of your perceptions I mean you can solecism is j- makes just as much sense from a fil- from a purely philosophical uh, perspective as does the or, the ordinary way of looking at the world I mean, how, how do you know that that I that that I really exist. That 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 what you're listening to is coming from a person like you. Mm-hmm. And at least in theology, the inference is that God is um, God is not evil. That God wouldn't deceive you like that. In philosophy, there is no how do you know? So I don't see how philosophy can be the can be the ground uh, because if philosophy is the ground, then you can't even know that the world exists out there. How can you study the natural world? if philosophy offers no actual proof that the natural world even even exists.
1: Right, yeah. I guess you could take philosophy as being sort of rooted in a sort of reliableist understanding of sort of common sense. And so that's the starting point.
0: Right, right. You, you, you have to believe that reason is reliable. And um, in my view, I mean, in, that cannot be grounded in itself. It has to be grounded elsewhere. And obviously the only other Elsewhere on tap would be gone. So, so I, I, theology I think really is the queen of the sciences. Yeah, and and but and frankly, all scientists practice it. I mean, every scientist is a theologian of sorts.
1: In, at least implicitly, despite what they might say, right?
0: In, right, 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 right. Implicitly, I mean, obviously, very few of them are are the, are are the least bit aware of it, because scientists are are almost without exception. The worst philosophers on earth—they're <laughs> uh, they're terrible philosophers—and uh, they, they do things all the all the time that, that they don't understand. Yeah, I'm very much a and I guess this is just my Thomism coming through. That theology is is the queen of the sciences; it's it's the basis for all knowledge. Even when you deny God's existence, you're you're, you're making theological assumptions.
1: Right, right.
0: But self self-reput, uh, self refutation is is basically the modus operandi of these people, anyway. So. Huh. Uh Uh-huh. Right. So uh, it has been a delight, Joshua. Thank you. And I I would love to talk some more. Maybe we we could do some more podcasts.
1: I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. And uh, to our listeners, this is uh, Mike Egner from Mind Matters News, interviewing Dr. Joshua Ferris. Thank you for listening. Good day.
1: This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai That's mindmatters.ai Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.